Whitley Choir, great job. Thank you very much for a powerful reminder this morning that our God is not dead, He is alive. Whitley, you did a phenomenal job even with your Roman centurion shoes on there. So I give Whitley a hard time all the time about those shoes she's wearing because they go all the way up to her knees and they look like something from a Roman soldier. But uh, thank you for wearing those this morning and for singing <laughs> so beautifully. Um, before we look at God's Word this morning, I need to just let you know of a couple of events that we have coming up this week that we need you to pay attention to. One, Wednesday night we will be having a special call church conference, church business meeting, uh, to deal with a, a resolution or a recommendation from our missions team regarding uh, the house that we have renovated at the Circle Ranch and the need for some additional funds to repair a roof there. And so that information is on your worship guide, and we will be handling that Wednesday night. We ask you to be a part of that if you're a member of Central Park Baptist Church to be here to speak to that and to vote on that as well. And then this coming weekend, we have a, a very unique opportunity to host a live stream of a conference by Paul Tripp. If you've never had an opportunity to hear Paul Tripp speak, you have missed an incredible blessing. Dr. Paul Tripp is a pastor, counselor, and, and conference speaker who probably has the best grasp on the gospel and its implications for our daily lives than anybody I've met, probably. Dr. Paul Tripp has spoken into my life through a number of his books, as well as through hearing him speak on a couple of different occasions. And he is doing a nationwide, global, really, uh, live stream event where he will be speaking at a church on a parenting conference called Foundations for a Godly Home. And that event will be broadcast via the internet, and we have purchased a streaming license to be able to host that here at Central Park Baptist Church. That will be Friday night and Saturday morning. It'll be Friday night from about 6.30 to about 9.30. It'll be Saturday morning from about 9 to 12. Uh, there is child care provided if you need child care for your children, if you will let us know about that, preferably today, so that we can make those preparations this week. This is a great opportunity for you to invest in people in your lives, not only to come to the parenting conference yourself, but also you might have a, a co-worker, a neighbor, a grandson, a granddaughter, a child who right now is really struggling with, with being a parent. I know that very few of us in here actually struggle with what it means to be a parent, but for some of us, we, we, uh, we really wake up every morning realizing that we have no idea what we're doing and that we feel ill-equipped, especially when it comes to trying to figure out how to shape the gospel into the lives of people born with a sinful nature. And Paul Tripp will speak into that issue um, Friday night and Saturday morning. Where we will have it will depend upon how many people we have that register for the event. It's a free event. It's our gift to you. It's our gift to the community. But we need you to take advantage of this. If you can't come to everything, if you can't come Friday night, but you can come Saturday, or you can come Friday night, but you can't come Saturday, that's fine. Come to what you can. We will have access to this teaching afterwards for one year, and so we will probably look for an opportunity to show this as a seminar or a class for, for our community sometime this fall. But I encourage you to pray, pray about being a part of it and let us know that you plan to attend. The information for the parenting conference is on the back of your newsletter. 
It also went out as an email this week, and in the email, if you received that, there's a link that you can go online and register using a Google form and let us know about your intention to be involved. But come and support this event. I think it would be something that would speak into your life and encourage you in a mighty way. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open up this morning to Mark chapter 13 as we're going to start a new sermon series on the parables of Jesus Christ. My intention in this sermon series is between now and probably the end of July, get us through kind of the the summer months, we're going to be looking at a number of different parables that Jesus taught and what was Jesus saying in that parable and what is it that he wants us to take away as followers of Jesus Christ. We will not be covering every parable that Jesus taught in this sermon series because there's somewhere around 40 parables that he taught. We will be covering probably about 10 of the most familiar parables that Jesus taught to get an idea of what it is that Jesus wants us to know. The parables are some of the most vivid and instructive passages throughout the New Testament, and they are powerful stories which create memorable word pictures for many of us that are designed to instruct us in spiritual truths. Even some of Jesus' parables are familiar to people who don't go to church or don't know much about the Bible. Even people who, who, who never attend a church have likely heard what it means to be a good Samaritan or likely know what you're talking about when you're talking about a, a prodigal son. People who, who, who don't have much knowledge of God are even familiar with those terms because these vivid pictures and these vivid stories have been passed down for so long that many of us are familiar with them. And the reason for this is because Jesus was a master teacher. Jesus was, without argument, the greatest teacher who ever lived. And while many people are familiar with the miracle-working ministry of Jesus, I believe it can be stated that Jesus' teaching ministry was far more important and arguably far more powerful. Jesus, no doubt, did incredible miracles by, by raising Lazarus from the dead, by causing the blind to see, by making the lame to walk. But I would tell you that I believe that Jesus' teaching ministry is far more important for us to understand than even the miracles that he performed. Jesus' teaching ministry began... In Matthew chapter uh, 4 and 5 and Luke, he, he begins his ministry in the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. He goes into the synagogue that morning and he, he picks up the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. And he reads about how the coming of the kingdom is going to, to, to be fulfilled by many miraculous signs. And then he places that scroll down and announces to the people there in the synagogue in Nazareth, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And from that moment on, Jesus' primary mission on this earth was marked by declaring the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into a lost and broken world. Now, Jesus did perform many miracles, but those miracles were signs which validated that he was the Messiah and that what he said about God's kingdom was true. Jesus didn't perform miracles simply to to announce his power or to demonstrate his power, but to validate that what he was teaching and what he was saying about the kingdom of God was true because it was accompanied by this miracle-working power. And we must remember that it wasn't the miracles of Jesus that put him at odds with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They didn't crucify Jesus because he was a man who worked miracles and healed people. They crucified him because of the content of his teaching and the authority with which he claimed. 
And it was as he taught the Pharisees and the religious leaders that they were actually opposing God and his kingdom that these men decided that this rabbi from Nazareth needed to be done away with. Jesus was a master teacher, and because he was, he knew exactly how to teach spiritual truths in such a way that people not only could understand it, but they desired to know more. And one of the ways that he did this was through the use of parables. Now, before we get to our text and before we start this sermon series, let's define for a moment what a parable is and and what a parable is not. Because there's a lot of confusion when we come to the parables about what are their purpose, what are they, and, and why did Jesus speak in parables. That's what we're going to talk about today. So what, what is a parable? Well, let me tell you what a parable is. And a parable is not just a spiritual analogy. When Jesus spoke in parables, he wasn't just trying to find common, familiar, everyday things to compare spiritual truth to. Some people think that Jesus was was trying to to help people understand these complex spiritual truths, so he just looked for analogies. But a parable is more than simply analogy. A parable is a story with a purpose. Jesus had a spiritual truth and a spiritual purpose behind every parable. As one writer said, a parable is simply an elongated metaphor with a distinctly spiritual lesson contained within it. A parable is not just a simple analogy, and it's not an allegory. An allegory is a story in which every element in the story is symbolic of something else. And one of the problems that people have sometimes when they try to understand Jesus' parables is when Jesus tells stories, people try to find the allegorical meaning behind every single detail within the parable. Allegories are stories in which everything in the story is symbolic of something else, such as George Orwell's Animal Farm. It's an allegorical story in which all of the animals in the farm are symbolic of certain elements of communism. Anybody had to read that growing up? You might remember what it was like to grow up in that era where communism was a constant threat. And Orwell wrote this book to to give an allegorical interpretation of the dangers of communism. John Bunyan's work of Pilgrim's Progress is probably the most famous Christian allegory. But Jesus' parables are not allegories. Sometimes Jesus, the people or the, the elements in Jesus' stories are symbolic of something like the father in the prodigal son is symbolic of the father. But we don't want to sit down and try to find some hidden meaning and detail behind every part of the parable because when we do, we obscure the meaning of the parable as a whole. So what is a parable? John MacArthur defines it as, An ingeniously simple word picture illuminating a profound spiritual lesson. That's a parable. A parable is an ingeniously simple word picture illuminating a profound spiritual lesson. A parable is a spiritual story that uses common and familiar elements to teach us spiritual truths. And because Jesus was a master teacher, he understood the power that parables had and how to use them to teach spiritual truths to both his disciples and to us as the church. As I said a second ago, we have at least 40 recorded parables in the New Testament that Jesus taught. He likely taught many other parables that we don't have recorded in the Gospels. I don't believe that that the ones that we have recorded were the only stories or parables that Jesus used. 
And in recent years, many pastors and church leaders have even gone so far as to claim that Jesus' method of telling stories was the primary way in which he taught spiritual truth. And they say that stories appeal to people better than didactic sermons, that, that people like to hear stories and they want to be entertained. They want to hear stories of things that they're familiar with more than they want to hear a sermon. So in the day and time in which we live in, people are kind of, pastors are, are moving away from the exposition of God's Word in order to tell more Bible stories and, and to try to teach spiritual truth through stories. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. Number one, I can't tell stories as good as Jesus did. I, I can't tell spiritual stories with spiritual truths like Jesus did. And I don't want to try to do that. The idea that Jesus used stories that we should turn to and, and that's the way that we should preach today has caused many to reject the idea of preaching sermons. And the tragic result of such an approach is a dearth in the church of spiritual truth. And that Christians in many of these churches are spiritually malnourished and ill-equipped to fight sin and grow spiritually because they are fed a diet of moralistic stories that are devoid of the gospel. I don't believe that just because Jesus taught in parables that is a, is a, a prerequisite or, a, or, a, or, a, or some way for us to model all of our teaching after. What I believe is they teach us spiritual truths that we as the church need to unpack. So how do we understand Jesus and His use of parables? And over the next 10 or 12 weeks, how can we look at these incredibly powerful stories that Jesus taught and learn from them the spiritual truths that I believe that Jesus wants you and me to know. Before we begin to unpack the parables and before we start looking at them individually, let's talk about why Jesus chose to use parables in the first place. One day while Jesus was telling one of his most powerful stories, when he finished, his disciples asked him, why do you speak to the people in parables? They wanted to know why Jesus told stories and specifically why he told stories that were sometimes confusing to people instead of simply declaring the truth. Why didn't Jesus just stand in front of the people and declare himself to be Messiah and talk about what that meant? Why did he choose to embed spiritual truths in stories that some people understood and some people didn't? And so today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, and we're going to talk about what happened when Jesus told stories. Let's read in the text. Matthew chapter 13 says, the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. So you've got the picture here. Jesus is sitting in a boat needing to amplify his teaching out to a crowd of people, probably several thousand that would have been gathered there that day. Verse 3, and he told them many things in parables, saying, and he begins his first parable, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. 
He who has ears, let him hear. And then he just walks away. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you kind of understand this parable and you know a little bit about what's going on here and you, you probably know a little bit of the elements of what's happening here. But if you were in that crowd that day, what you heard was a story about a sower who sowed seeds and four different types of soil and four different results. And then Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear, walks away. So obviously it created a great deal of confusion. Verse 10. So the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn. And I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So Jesus tells them why he spoke in parables. So let's unpack this for a second and talk about why Jesus tells stories and what's going on here. And as we do, I want you to see really three things. Number one, I want you to see the person of the parables. The person of the parables is Jesus Christ himself. We've already talked about the fact that Jesus was a master teacher who knew how to powerfully convey spiritual truth using stories. But let's talk for a moment about who this person is and why he chose to convey spiritual truth in this way. Before we do, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. <clears throat> at the end of him teaching these parables in Matthew chapter 13, or right there towards the end of it, Matthew records all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable, which was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, Tragically, many pastors misinterpret these verses 34 and 35 when it says that all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables, indeed he said nothing to them without a parable. And some people, some pastors have interpreted that to mean that whenever Jesus spoke to large crowds because he understood that there were many people in that crowd who, who, who didn't have formal education, who, who didn't have a, a firm grasp of God, that, that he would only tell stories to people because stories conveyed spiritual truth better than sermonic material. But this isn't actually true. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, the Bible says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And then we have three chapters of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, contextually, it tells us that Jesus was telling that sermon, that, that incredible sermon of the king, 
to his disciples, but no doubt many people in the crowd heard the things that he shared with the disciples that day. And Matthew chapter 23 records that when Jesus was in Jerusalem, he spoke to both the crowds and the disciples to warn them about the scribes and the Pharisees. So we know that every time Jesus appeared in front of a large crowd of people, he didn't just tell stories. What does Matthew mean when he says that he said nothing to them without a parable? This is why it's important to read Scripture in context. Because to understand what's going on in Matthew chapter 13, you need to back up a little bit and understand what's going on in Matthew chapter 12. Contextually, when Jesus begins this ministry of parables... When he begins to speak to the crowd in parables in Matthew chapter 13, he's about two years into his public ministry of teaching and healing. He's amassed a great crowd of followers, and in doing so, he's caught the attention of the scribes and the Pharisees who have come to investigate him. However, they quickly reject Jesus because Jesus isn't the kind of Messiah that they had been expecting. In Jerusalem, they had begun to hear of this rabbi and this teacher in Galilee who was performing miracles and the power of God was upon him and he, he taught with a certain authority that, that no one had ever heard before. And so the religious leaders come to see maybe this is the Messiah. But their expectation of the Messiah was much different than what Jesus gave them. And while the Pharisees and the religious leaders saw in Jesus the clear evidence of his miracles and the clear authority with which he taught, they refused to believe that he was the Son of God. Jesus didn't fit into their religious box. And because he didn't fit into their religious box, he can't be our Messiah. So in Matthew chapter 12, they confront Jesus at the first of the chapter because on the Sabbath day, as he and his disciples are walking through a field, they pick some grain. They're hungry. They've been walking for a long time. They pick some grain, and they eat some of the grain on the Sabbath, which was a clear violation of the Sabbath rules of the Pharisees and the scribes. As we talked about the Sabbath a second ago, the Pharisees and the religious leaders had turned a sacred gift of grace in the Sabbath into a terrible burden by enacting hundreds of man-made rules about what you could and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. To the point that you couldn't even show a person mercy if they were caught in a pit or if they had an animal that had, that had fallen into a pit. You couldn't help them get the animal out of the pit because that would be considered work and you would be violating the Sabbath. And so when the religious leaders are looking for ways to trap Jesus and they see his disciples eating the grain, they say, your disciples have violated the rules. Jesus confronts them on their hypocrisy and their misunderstanding of God and his word. Then, right after that, in verses 9 through 14, on another Sabbath, several weeks later, Jesus encounters a man in the synagogue with a withered hand. And the Pharisees are there and they notice this man with this hand and they know that Jesus is a miracle worker and so they want to see is Jesus going to heal this man which to them would be considered a work on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus does heal the man and, and he confronts them about their hypocrisy again when he says, how much more value is a man than a sheep so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath and so he tells the man, stretch out your hand and the man stretched it out and it was restored. 
And verse 14 says that they began to conspire how to destroy him. At that particular point, Jesus wasn't the, the Messiah that they were expecting to the point that they decided this guy is trouble and we need to get rid of him. Then, later on in chapter 12, Jesus comes up against a man in a tragically desperate condition. In verses 22 through 32, he encounters a man who is blind, mute, and possessed by a demon. And he heals this man in Matthew chapter 12, verse 23. He heals this man, and all of the people are amazed, and they say to themselves, can this be the Son of God? So the crowds are beginning to recognize that this man has some kind of authority to be able to not only heal people, but to control the demon world. And as such, this may be the Son of God that we've longed for for hundreds of years. Matthew chapter 12, verse 24 says, When the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Verse 25, Jesus says, or the Bible says, Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, how do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, many in the crowd saw the clear evidence of God's power and concluded that Jesus was the Messiah. But the religious leaders doubled down on their refusal and actually began to accuse the Son of God of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Jesus responds by accusing them of blasphemy against the Spirit of God. In other words, blasphemy against the Spirit of God is to take the clear evidence of the Spirit, the clear evidence that Jesus is the Son of God, and to, and to make the clear work of God and to say that it is done by the power of Satan. To see the evidential and undeniable power of God and to attribute it to the works of the devil is an unforgivable offense. And so at this particular point, Jesus understands that as, as he goes on the next year of his ministry, everywhere he goes, he is going to be accompanied by Pharisees and religious leaders that are going to reject him, that are looking to conspire against him, and that are looking to confuse the people over him. And that's when we get to Matthew chapter 13. And by this point, Jesus makes a dramatic turn in his public teaching ministry. Prior to this, he's taught many spiritual truths to disciples and to crowds and to many people. But now he begins to teach more by embedding complex spiritual truths in parables and stories, which often confused some of his hearers. As a matter of fact, when, when people say that telling stories like Jesus did is the preferred method of teaching, they often forget that most of the people that heard Jesus' stories didn't understand what he was saying. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Jesus is forcing those who truly want to believe and follow him to search and investigate deeper into the words that he's saying. Jesus isn't just telling simple spiritual bedtime stories to simple-minded people because that's all they could understand. His purpose in telling parables was much deeper than that. 
which takes us from the person of the parables then to the purpose of the parables. Why did Jesus tell stories? Remember in the first couple of verses of chapter 13, when, when Jesus tells this parable of the soil and the, and the sower and the seed, it creates a certain sense of confusion among the disciples. And so if we look back at the stories we saw a second ago, and we begin that he begins to teach, he, what he's doing here is he's beginning to teach people in such a way that they can no longer stay neutral or on the fence when it comes to him. That question in chapter 12, could this be the Son of God, is literally the question that everybody needs to be asking, and they need to answer. And so Jesus no longer wants people to be on the fence. He wants them to make a decision. Either Jesus is the Son of God, and if He is, the kingdom of God has come and we need to follow Him, or He's not and we need to reject Him. And so He tells a story in verses 3 through 9 about a sower who goes out into the field and sows seed. And as He does so, the seed falls all around and falls into different types of soil. Depending on the soil, the seed might get eaten by birds or it might be stunted from growing because of rocks or thorns or it might grow into an abundant crop. And then in verse 9, he simply ends the parable without any interpretation by saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What does that mean? What does it mean when Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear? Doesn't almost everyone have ears? Who in here has two ears? Okay, everybody in here has two ears pretty much. Most of us have ears that can hear. Some of us, our hearing is failing a little more than it used to. But most of us in here have the ability to hear. So what is Jesus talking about? He's not talking about the physical ability to hear. He's telling them something else. Jesus is cluing us in on a very important spiritual truth, which is this. Some people have ears that can hear spiritual truth. And some people have physical ears that can hear the Word of God, but not spiritually sensitive ears to understand spiritual truth. Let me say that again. Some people have ears that can hear spiritual truth. Some of you in here today, you have ears that can hear the gospel and spiritual truth and receive that. But while everyone in here has physical ears that can hear the proclamation of the gospel, not everyone has spiritually sensitive ears to hear and understand spiritual truth. Have you ever wondered why some people can come to church and hear the very same message that you do and it does absolutely nothing for them? You ever thought about that? You hear the gospel preached and it brings conviction, it inspires you to believe, it grows and strengthens your faith, and yet for the person sitting next to you, it bounces off of the walls. And it's because you have ears to hear, but they have ears that doesn't. And it's this lack of explanation that confuses the disciples and causes them to ask the question in verse 10, why do you speak to them in parables? Why, why Jesus, do you tell these stories instead of just telling them the truth? And Jesus gives us what I believe are three real answers to that question. So number one, Jesus teaches in parables to distinguish those who truly believe God's truth from those who don't. When Jesus teaches in parables, it's to draw a dividing line in the sand between those who truly believe God's truth and those who don't. In verse 11, he says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. In verse 13, 
This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus tells the disciples that the reason why he is declaring these stories in parables is because for them, as those who've chosen to believe in him and to believe him to be the Son of God, they have been given the ability to know and understand the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to many people in the crowd, they had not yet been given those secrets. Now, when he talks about the secrets of the kingdom here, this secret was not something that God was intentionally concealing from his people just to be mean. When, when, when the Bible talks about mysteries and secrets, it's not something that God is trying to hide from everybody. It's something that's been concealed from people's ability to understand because of their sinful hearts. This secret is a spiritual truth that had been concealed for centuries but was now being revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The disciples themselves had seen these secrets being revealed. They had seen the miracles that Jesus was performing. They had seen the authority by which he teached. They, 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 they began to believe in him to be the Messiah. And because they did, they had the ability to understand kingdom things that the regular common folk couldn't understand at that time. And specifically, when he's talking about those who have ears that do not hear and, 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 and eyes that do not see, he's talking about the Pharisees and many others in the crowd who saw the very same evidence of the miracle working of the Son of God and yet hardened their hearts and refused to believe. Right there in chapter 12, a second ago, when, when Jesus heals the, the blind, deaf, and, and mute man, and, and some people say, this is the Son of God, and others say He's casting out demons by the power of the Spirit. You see in a dramatic way people who had eyes that could see and people who had eyes that were blind. And so Jesus tells parables in which spiritual truths are embedded in the stories because some people have ears that can hear and receive spiritual truth, and some people will refuse to believe the clear evidence of God no matter what. And because they stubbornly refuse to believe... God hides these spiritual truths from them. And through the parables, the Spirit of God will reveal truth through stories about seeds and sons and benevolent Samaritans to those who believe in God's Son and desire to know more about Him, while those who don't believe simply see these stories as moral fables. So Jesus tells parables to distinguish those who truly believe from those who do not. Those who believe and, 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 and apply the spiritual principle are those who have faith. Those who just simply hear it and say, oh, that was a really good story are those who don't have ears to hear. A second reason why Jesus teaches us in parables is to help us to better understand God's kingdom and to follow his ways. To help those who are believers to better understand God's kingdom and follow his ways. Jesus says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. The parables are Jesus' way of showing us what God's kingdom is like and how you and I gain entrance into the kingdom. We are taught through the parables to be prepared for the coming king. We're taught how to pray as kingdom citizens. We're taught how the, the gospel is a valuable treasure with which we should sell everything that we have in order to go and pursue it. The parables do not just help us to be better, more loving, and more moral people. That's not their purpose. The parables help us to understand what it means to be kingdom citizens submitted to Jesus our King. 
Jesus says this incredibly confusing statement in verse 12 when he says, To the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away from him. That's a statement that would drive Bernie Sanders crazy. To the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has is taken from him. That statement sounds confusing and massively unfair, doesn't it? Because we live in a fairness society where we expect everything to be equitable. And so the idea of someone having something and receiving more while someone who doesn't have loses what little they have sounds grossly unjust. So what is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about citizenship in the kingdom of God. He's talking about what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom, what it, what it means to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God. And the one who has are those who have heard and seen the clear evidence that Jesus is the rightful king of this world and have submitted to him. And because we have submitted to him, we have spirit, and because we have responded favorably to spiritual truth, Jesus will continue to reveal spiritual truth to them. And yet the ones who have not are those who have seen the clear evidence of Jesus, like the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and yet rejected it. They cannot bow to another king. And so once they reject the kingship of Jesus, the revelation of truth is taken away from them. Jesus says, if you want to see the very clear evidence that I'm the Son of God, and you want to turn away from that because I don't fit within your religious box, then I can't tell you anything else. I can't give you any other spiritual truth to make you believe. And when Jesus says that for those who have not, even what they have will be taken away is a sobering reminder that not everyone will always have access to the gospel and spiritual truth. God gives everyone an opportunity to respond to the truth. But if they continue to reject the revelation of the Holy Spirit, they reject the very source of the gospel and spiritual truth itself. But a third reason why Jesus teaches us in parables is to motivate those of us who are Christ followers to boldly share the truth of God's word. To motivate us to boldly share the truth of God's word. In verse 16, after, after talking about this prophecy from Isaiah about people whose ears were dull and whose eyes couldn't see, Jesus says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and blessed are your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus says to his disciples, and consequently us in the church, that we are blessed because many people throughout the centuries long to see what was happening at that moment before their very eyes. Many people had longed for centuries to see the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into a lost and broken world. And so righteous men such as Abraham and Moses and David and prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel and Micah longed to see the day when God would make all things right again in a lost and broken world. The disciples saw it. Those prophets and, and men in the past saw it with their spiritual eyes and believed by faith yet they never had the opportunity to see it with their physical eyes. In Jesus' day, there were thousands in the crowd who saw the clear evidence of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ, and yet they rejected him, eventually calling for the crucifixion of the Son of God himself. 
And so what Jesus wants you and me to understand is that when when we look into God's word and we see these parables and we see the truths that God is teaching us through them, we do that so that we can boldly share the truth of God's word with others. God does not give you access to spiritual truth to increase your biblical knowledge. God does not give you access to spiritual truth to increase your biblical knowledge. He gives you access to spiritual truth so that you can pass it along to others. And we must remember that we still live in a broken world filled with broken people who have eyes that cannot see and ears that do not hear the gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Spiritual blindness and deafness is the tragic state of thousands of people in the city of Decatur, millions of people in our country, and billions of people around the world. And the point of Jesus' parables is not to give us some sort of hidden truth for us as believers, but to remind us as kingdom citizens that our king is the one true king and that millions have yet to hear of his glory. So we don't study these parables to increase our biblical knowledge. We study them to motivate us to boldly share the truth of God's word and the good news of our king in every place that we go. Which brings us to point number three, which is the point of the parables. The point of the parables. As we discuss the parables over the next several weeks, we're going to look at several of them. And we're going to basically tell you that that every parable has one central spiritual truth that Jesus is trying to convey. Now, Parables have many different applications. They have many different principles that we can learn from them. But the point of the parables is not to read them and say, well, this is what I think Jesus is saying to me. Jesus has a very clear point in every single parable that he's sharing. And we're going to show you what those are as we move through these series. But the point of the parables altogether is to help us to understand that Jesus Christ is the king and to submit to him. The point of the parable is to lead us to King Jesus. It's to help us see that Jesus Christ is a sovereign and rightful king of this world and to surrender our lives and to submit ourselves to his lordship. Because one day every knee will bow and one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so when we read a parable about a sower who sows seeds... You and I pray for hearts of good soil to receive the seed of God's word so that we can know our king and better submit to his rule. When we read about a prodigal son who has left the father's house to pursue his own self-destructive path, we pray for the return of that prodigal to the father and we pray that we would avoid the self-righteous attitude of the older brother. When we read about the five virgins who were unprepared for the coming of the king, we are reminded to stay vigilant in our faith and to look for our soon returning king. These are the points of the parables to prepare us for the coming of King Jesus. The point of the parables is to lead us to Christ. And yet, as we said earlier, even in this room today, There are people that are in this room who have ears to hear spiritual truth. As we speak and as we declare God's word, you you hear the word, you're receptive to it, you're wanting to learn more. There are others that are here and you don't have ears that hear. The gospel just bounces off of you. And so I pray today that the Holy Spirit would open up your heart, open up your eyes, and open up your ears to be able to hear the truth that Jesus Christ is the sovereign king of the universe. 
that he came to this world to live a life of perfect righteousness and obedience to God, something that you and I could not do. And that he went to the cross to bear your sin, to bear your shame, to bear the price of all of the sins that you had ever committed. And that when he did, he gave his life. And that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. And that all you have to do is believe that. And if you will by faith believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay your sin price, if you will repent of your sin and turn to Jesus, the Bible says you can be a new person. You can be a totally born again new creation. But you have to take that first step. You have to choose to believe. So do you have ears to hear this morning? Do you have eyes to see? That's what we pray for you today and over the course of the next several weeks as we look at these parables. Would you, would you bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me? In just a moment, we're going to have an invitation and an opportunity for you to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you are here today and you want to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you want to turn your life to Him, you want to say, Jesus, I want to give you all that I am for all that you are. And today you want to become a follower of Jesus Christ. In just a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond. We're going to ask you while we sing to come forward and say, Pastor Matt, I need to give my life to Christ. We have people here that will walk you through the gospel and tell you how you can be a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're here today because God's been dealing with you in some other area that you need to repent of, or maybe you need prayer over something, or maybe God's been leading you to join Central Park Baptist Church in just a moment as we sing this song and give you that opportunity to respond. Whatever it is, you respond as the Lord Jesus leads you. God, we thank you today for ears that hear and eyes that see. And we pray, God, that you would now give us hearts to respond to the gospel. Lead us as you would today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Sing.